there are only two religions. There is the true faith, faith in God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then there is idolatry, faith in anything but God the Father of God the Son. And behind each of these faiths, there stands a power. On the one side, we have God himself, who works powerfully by his Spirit, bearing witness to his Son and the wonders of salvation. And then on the other side, on the side of idolatry, we find the prince of this world, the devil, the old serpent, the one who works by the Spirit of the Antichrist to oppose the testimony to God our Father and Jesus Christ our Savior and Lord. And under the dominion of one or the other, we find every living soul on earth. We are either those who walk in the light, in which there is no darkness at all, where the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin, or we are those who walk in darkness following the prince of the power of the air, deceiving and being deceived even to destruction. Between these two, there is no middle ground. There is no sliding scale. There is no graduation. On the one side is all the light, the truth, and the life, and on the other, darkness, terror, and death eternal. And of the reality of these two religions, we have already heard very much in this epistle of John. And it has brought us climactically to that deep pastoral reassurance of which we heard last week at the end of chapter 3, where we heard that if we believe in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, we can reassure our hearts before us. We know that God does abide in us, and we in him. We know that we need fear no more. We are those who have passed from darkness to light, from death to life. We know we are on the right side. And more than that, we are reassured of this by his spirit, this spirit that tells us that this is true of you and I personally. And that was the very last thing that we saw at the end of chapter 3. By this, we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. And that reference to the assurance of the Spirit then becomes John's cue for what we see today. It's a section which which carries on talking about the work of the Spirit, but we're only going to be looking at the first six verses of it. Chapter 4 and verses 1 through 6. Verses which more or less answer this question. How do I test if the Spirit is the Spirit from God? And you might be wondering why this is suddenly such an important thing to think about. Well, seeing as we've seen that there is not just the true Spirit from God, but also the Spirit from the world, the Spirit of the Antichrist, we need to be able to test the spirits. We need to be able to be able to discern true from false because... Only in that way will we be able to hold to what is right and resist the spirit that tries to lead us away from the truth into idolatry. 
This is what he starts with, verse 1. Beloved, he says, and he gives him two commands, one negative and one positive. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God. Now, usually when someone is suspected of a crime, the maxim is what? Innocent until proven guilty, right? Treat them as if, as if they're good until we find out otherwise. But here the maxim is different. Here the maxim is, do not believe the spirits, but first test them. It sounds perhaps a little bit uncharitable, doesn't it? Why not just believe every spirit until you find out they're not a good spirit? Well, the reason is given in the rest of verse 1, for many false spirits have gone out into the world. Do you see, he's saying there is a clear and current serious danger that you will encounter, a spirit that is not from God. You must test the spirits. It's a bit like in wartime. In wartime, everyone has to stop and show their papers and prove they're not of the enemy before they can pass. It's a dangerous environment. A time when our working assumption is do not trust until we test otherwise. Now, how do we test these spirits? Well, the first thing to notice is that he mentions false prophets. The way you hear from the spirit is by the prophet, by those who claim to be speaking on behalf of God. And what is a test? How do you know the spirit of God? Well, again, there are two statements to test them by. One negative, one positive. Verse 2, he says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Let's zoom in a little bit on that. See what it means. And I want you to notice three things in particular. First, I want you to notice that when he says every spirit confesses, he's not talking about some inner thing of the spirit, but what the spirit actually says, the words of the prophet. Test the spirit by what the prophet says. Second, I want you to notice again this stark binary distinction. It is either a spirit from God or a spirit not from God. There's no partly okay, useful but not quite right spirit. They're either from God or they're not. And third, I want you to notice that the comparison that he puts in this test is, is not quite complete. It doesn't quite match. The spirit from God, he says, is to confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, but the one that's not from God simply confess, does not confess Jesus. And this last point, actually, is quite important for how we understand the rest of this passage. What is the point that is being made here? Why do we need to confess that this, why do we need the Spirit to confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? Well, the answer to this is probably going to depend on your assumptions about 1 John. Now, there are some people who think that 1 John is kind of fighting against Gnosticism. That was a false teaching we know from the century after. Uh, 1 John was written. It includes the idea that Jesus, um, he is a kind of high spiritual being, but 
he's not supreme God. He's one who is sent by the supreme God to kind of give us the wisdom, give us the secrets we need to escape from the world. And so he just appears to be amongst us. If we think that this is the false teaching that one John is against, then, then the focus of the test is the word flesh, that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, not without flesh. Other people don't think that. Some assume that what one John is dealing with is a threat of people who come and they deny that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Christ. They have in view this idea that... Um, there are people, there are opponents who know Jesus, and they know that God has promised a Messiah, a Christ to come. They just don't believe that Jesus is that Messiah who has come. The NET translation seems to pick this up. It translates it as the Spirit from God confesses Jesus as the Christ who has come in the flesh. That's the test. Do, do they know Jesus is the Christ rather than do they know that Jesus the Christ has come in the flesh. Where, where does the focus lie? However, I don't think that it's necessary to make either of those assumptions. First of all, actually, there's no real evidence of Gnosticism at the time that 1 John was written. Might be there, it, it might not. Secondly, these supposed key focal details, Jesus is the Christ, the one who came in the flesh, I happily missed out in verse 3. Have a look at verse 3, and you notice that he's, he says that every spirit that does not confess Jesus, that's it. Jesus, full stop. So I suggest the more natural reading is just to take the repeated part, Jesus, as the focus. The spirit from God confesses Jesus, and the false spirit denies Jesus. Yes, the Jesus that the true spirit confesses is the same Jesus who is the Christ, the same Jesus who did come, who had human flesh. Yes, if they deny that, it's not the true Jesus they're confessing. Yes, that's true. But do you see, it seems that what they oppose here is Jesus in his entirety. They are against him in whole, not just in part. And so, this spirit, which is not from God, aims, if he can, to have us drop our faith in Jesus entirely. He opposes faith in the name of the Son of God. He would have us stop trusting in Jesus in the flesh. He would have us turn away again into the darkness, into the idolatry of the rest of the world. Now, this doesn't mean that this is the only way you test a prophecy. And it doesn't mean that it's not possible for someone to make a false confession of Jesus. I mean, Jesus himself um, rebukes those who cry, Lord, Lord, but, but he does not know. But in this context, where there are those who are making confessions for or against Christ, this is exactly the test you use. And it's a test that exposes those who are against Jesus. As verse 3 says, this is the Spirit of the Antichrist. Now, you have already heard about Antichrist a few weeks ago, and you, I think you heard that Antichrist, it could be one who is against Christ, one who opposes Christ, or perhaps one who stands in the place of Christ, tries to replace Christ. Both are true, of course, here too. 
But contextually, the focus does seem to be here, one who opposes Christ, who denies Christ, who tries to stop the testimony to Christ. Just as God has sent his true spirit in amongst his people that they would testify to Christ, the Antichrist has sent this false spirit amongst his people to have them deny the teaching of Christ. But this should not be a surprise to them, for as he carries on in verse 3, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Uh, We heard in Deuteronomy 13 already warnings about the coming of a false prophet, false prophets who would seek to turn people away from the true confession of faith into idolatry and how serious that was. Jesus likewise warned repeatedly of false prophets who would come. And we see the same from Paul, from Luke, from Jude. And now John is telling them, this is not just a future problem. It is a present reality. They are now to expect to see the present action of false prophets, the spirit of the Antichrist, from that day all the way through these last days. At which point I want us to pause a little bit and think, who or what in our lives or our settings fulfills this function? Where, where do we realize that we are being urged, told to somehow abandon, give up, de-emphasize, forget, somehow modify our faith in the true Christ? Who is trying to make us believe another truth, a truth other than Jesus, who is the Christ and who came in the flesh to save us? We have to think about it because, unfortunately, the Antichrist does not normally send his false prophets with a pitchfork and and pointy ears. Nor does he have them give demonic cackles at the ends of their false teaching. He's, He's too smart for that. He knows how to clothe wolves as sheep. This is the kind of person he might use. He might use a rather handsome and kind hunk, a dreamboat who who literally steals your heart away, who tries to lead you into making compromise after small compromise until one day somehow it seems very reasonable to say yes to him and no to Christ. Another time you might see the spirit of this Antichrist or perhaps not see him in the crowd of society, when somehow mocking Christianity and and faith in God becomes the cool thing to do. And let me tell you, it can seem so easy, so attractive, even thrilling to join with them and and deny Christ. Uh, Far, far more attractive than being found out by them as one who trusts in him. Other times might be when we Realize that maintaining our faith in Christ is going to cause us problems. Problems perhaps seeking political office or promotion or success. Just recently there was a British politician who learnt this to his peril and I'm sure he won't be the last. And then there are the more obvious ways, aren't there? Like those people who I think we all know who keep insisting that God has sent another prophet and that prophet says, stop calling Jesus the Son of God. Call him a great prophet, but not the son of God. It should be plain what spirit 
they speak by. Who else is there? Have you met the God, the mother people, who would have us trust in a different God, a new God entirely? Or those who call themselves Christians, but whose main focus is to have you not trust in Christ our Savior, but to trust in their corrupt sacraments for your salvation. Or Mormons who would change the Jesus who came in the flesh to someone less than divine. Sai Baba, yes, you have Jesus, but he's one of many gods. This is not, this is not the faith that the apostles confess. And I tell you who is the most dangerous of all. The most dangerous of all, I suspect, is your friend. The one who keeps making fun of you every time you won't go and join him for football on Sunday because he says you believe in an imaginary God-man. But the list could go on, couldn't it? But what's reassuring here is that no matter what we encounter, we already know what we need to know to confidently reject these and any others. We already know that the spirit that does not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh is not the spirit of God. We do not believe it. It is the spirit of Antichrist. We can say that with certainty. However, it's also true that the length of the list, the knowledge of, of the seriousness of the dark powers which are behind it can still be worrying, can't they? It's okay for Jesus to stand up to the devil and all his powers on the cross. In fact, we rejoice at the fact that he has disarmed and triumphed over them. But to ask us to do the same? If it is only us versus the Antichrist and all his powers, surely there's only one way it's going to end. Yes, there is surely only one way it is going to end. And that way is we are victorious over them. In fact, we have already overcome them, strange as it may sound at first. But this is exactly what John says, verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Let's unpack it just a little bit. Little children, he says, yes, you may seem weak, powerless, at the mercy of the Antichrist, but little children, you are from God. That is to say, children you may be, but you are God's children. You are born of his spirit by which Christ abides in you. As he said just before he started the passage, by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit he has given us. And do you see? Do you see if Christ does abide in us by his spirit, it suddenly changes the equation, doesn't it? Entirely. As John says, you have overcome, the, you have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's not to say that the Antichrist is not great. In fact, he is powerful and he is dangerous. He needs to be watched for. He needs to be guarded against. But no matter how great and powerful he may be, Christ who is in you is greater. Do you want to see that? Do you want to know that? Do you want to know that 
by he who is in you, you have already overcome the Antichrist and his force. Don't, don't look at yourself. Don't look at your weakness. Don't look at how few we are. Don't look at their craft or their power. Don't shudder when you see their force, but look only at this. Look at the fact that he who is in you has already entered and won mortal combat with their dark master on the cross. And having defeated them through his death, has now risen victorious over them in triumph over the sin and the world and the devil forever. And this is he who is in you, greater than he who is in the world. And so whenever you are faced with forces that would deny Christ, fear not, do not tremble, but know that they are powerless to overcome those in whom Christ abides. As my favorite prayerful reformer, Martin Luther, puts it in his magnificent hymn, I'm sure you know it, he said, did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Does ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Meanwhile, however, the fact that we have indeed overcome them in Christ does not mean that they are no longer there. And it doesn't mean that they're not going to continue to try to do all they can to unsettle our faith. And more than this, in fact, because we are yet in the world, the world which is under the power of the devil, it is often going to seem that they are greater, that they will look more powerful. And most of all, they will seem, let me tell you, popular. They will be well-received. They will seem to be great leaders amongst men. But this is all to be expected. As verse 5 says, they are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. And so, even if it seems that the whole world opposes or denies our Christ, do not be shaken or discouraged in your faith. In fact, if you should see multitudes flocking after anything but Jesus, yes, you are right to sorrow for their sake, but for ourselves. Take heart, for it is just as it should be. As verse 6 says, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever does not, whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Perhaps some of you will remember that, that Jesus said something very similar beforehand in, in John's gospel. He says to those who did not believe in his own day, you are of your father the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. And then he said, Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is because you are not from God. Jesus knew that the very fact that they did not believe, they did not listen to him, showed that they were not of God, but were of the devil. And now John is saying actually the same is true not only of Jesus, 
but of those who hear of Jesus by his followers. The acceptance or rejection by those who hear the true teaching of Christ reveals whether they know God or, or they do not know him. Now, this is kind of the same as verse 2, right? In verse 2, he said, we know the Spirit of God by whether it confesses the truth. And here it says, we know the Spirit by whether it listens to the truth. One of them is how, he, how they receive the word. One of them is what word they say. But behind that, you also notice something interesting. John has made a change from you to we. Did you see that? Why has he suddenly started saying we? Well, there are probably two possible ideas. Either John is excluding his readers, he means we means John and the apostles, or he's including himself with his readers, me and, and, and all of you. Now, some people really don't like the idea that, that, it is, that it's what the readers say that becomes the standard for testing spirits. It seems like you could twist that and abuse it. They want to say that the ultimate test that is being set out here is whether the Spirit agrees with John and the apostles or whether it contradicts them. They want to say we means John and the apostles. Those who know God listen to John and the apostles. There's not actually a very natural reading of the text, is it? First of all, if you notice, we are from God is exactly the same thing as he said, you are from God. The qualification for one is exactly the same as the other. He's not distinguishing. Secondly, he carries on in the next verse, which we're not looking at, verse 7, to continue with this first-person plural, saying, let us love one another. And no one says he's just saying, let the, me and the apostles love one another. No, it's clear. It means all of us love one another. And third, it just doesn't make sense to have a whole passage which is about his readers and then conclude it with something only applicable to John and the apostles. The other thing that I think is helpful to realize is that even by seeing it as John and all his hearers, we're not opening ourselves up to false teaching. If we took the verse out of context, we might, but remember this verse sits in the context of the whole epistle that we've been seeing so far, and remember that this is an epistle which insists right back from the beginning that it is only by hearing and believing the true testimony of the apostles concerning Jesus that you can have fellowship with Father or Son. The inclusive we here, the ones that the world will not hear, automatically means those who say the same things as the apostles did about Christ. What the we speaks here is the same as the apostles. And what this means is that whoever proclaims the true teaching of Christ, whether it is Christ himself, whether it is his apostles as sent by him, whether it is John's readers as taught by them, or whether it is us who share the same faith today because the truth is the same and it is being proclaimed into a world that is the same, we will find the world does not listen just as they did not listen to Christ and those who went before us. As he says, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So what have we seen from our text, and where do we go from here? I don't know about you, but personally I found that this text has been surprisingly 
reassuring. When, when we started reading it, it looked kind of like a diagnostic instruction manual, right? But I hope you've seen that the more we start to understand the diagnostic method, the more we've seen it's actually giving us wonderful spiritual strengthening. First, I want to say that it has given to us the joy of being narrow-minded. What do I mean? Well, we keep on hearing that we need to learn about God from other religions. Every religion, we are told, has some aspects of the truth, and the wise one is the one who gleans from everything and knows God better. But we can confidently say that that is all a load of rubbish. The moment they deny the coming of Jesus as Christ in the flesh, we know their spirit is not from God. That is the spirit of the Antichrist. They do not bring truth. We do not need to believe them, and we need ask no further. In fact, it doesn't matter who it is who denies the apostolic Jesus. Even if they should claim to be a preacher or a pastor or even a pope, our passage tells us do not believe them. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. The wise one is actually the one who tests the spirits that they are not led away again into the world of darkness and idolatry. We can be joyfully narrow-minded. Second, we've been, we have been reassured that when our faithful teaching about Christ is rejected, it doesn't mean that our teaching is wrong. Because we know that the world is in the power of the evil one, it is not a shock to us when the world will not listen. Because we are from God. And I want to say this is very important indeed, because what do you do when your preaching of Christ is rejected or mocked or ridiculed? Do you learn from your rejection? Do you soften your message? Do you adjust the hard truths about sin? Do you weaken the scandal of the cross? No. You rejoice and continue to hold firm to the one true word of Christ, for you know that this is the word of salvation that the world does not hear, but yet all who hear find salvation in it. And third and finally, we have seen the great reassurance that no matter how things look in the world, no matter how strong the Antichrist and his forces may seem, no matter how few and scattered and weak we may appear, we know we have overcome them already. We know that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. With his blood he has defeated us, and with power, with his blood he has defeated them, and with his power he will destroy them forever. And that means there's no reason at all to fear them. Even if the costs are great, even if the fighting is fierce, for we know that he who is in us wins the battle. I'll close with another verse of Luther's wonderful hymn. He says this, Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Let's pray.
Mighty Father, we, we thank you and we praise you that you have revealed to us the confidence we can have in your Son, Jesus Christ. The confidence we have in testing the spirits by which you help us to hold fast to that same Son and salvation in him. We thank you, Father, for the assurance you give us that he is greater than the spirit which is in the world. The knowledge that in him we have already overcome the Antichrist and the very worst he can throw at us. We pray, Father, that this confidence would soak deeply into our hearts. You'd renew our joy, increase our strength, and help us to long for that day when he returns and destroys every force of evil forever. Amen.